Hey everyone, I'm your host Patrick, and this is the very first episode of Not Adding Up. to start my first episode off by thanking you guys for tuning in and listening to my podcast. I've had an interest in true crime and true crime podcasts and documentaries and books for a long time and thought that this would be a productive use of that hobby along with my researching skills. So here we are and I thought it would be appropriate to have none other than my sister as my co-host on my first episode and I will let her introduce herself. Hey everyone, my name's Laurel. I'm super excited to join Patrick on this journey of his first podcast. I can't wait to hear uh, what he has researched. So it was not my intention to make my first case a two-parter, but this case is so crazy with so much information and it spans over so long of a period of time that I felt it was kind of necessary. I didn't want my first episode to be like an hour and a half long. I thought I would find a good breaking point in the middle and cut it off, but I will try my hardest not to leave you guys with any cliffhangers. But without any further ado, let's get into the case. So for my first case, I'm going to be going over the West Memphis Three. And if you are into true crime at all, you've probably at least heard of this case. It's pretty infamous for wrongful convictions. So... A lot of people at least can recognize the name, but I'm going to get into the background of the area. West Memphis is located in Arkansas, and as of 2020, the population was around 25,000 people. The median income in West Memphis is 50% less than the national average at 32,000, and they have a poverty rate of about two times the national average. Before the time of this crime, they were a stranger to homicides or violent crime, In 1960, Gervis Nichols shot and killed two nine-year-old boys and was convicted. And in the 80s, just a few years before this crime was committed, in 1985, 15-year-old Ronald Ward murdered two elderly sisters and their grandnephew. And just three years after that, there were the Barbara McCoy killings, where Barbara and an accomplice murdered and then burned her two children in what was then called a spiritual ritual. This definitely had an impact on the community and played a part in the satanic panic that would ensue over the next few decades. Uh, West Memphis is a very Baptist area. They're very highly religious, so anything that would point to any sort of spiritual or demonic or satanic killing would definitely ruffle their feathers. They're in the Bible Belt, I'm pretty sure. Clearly... Violent crime is something that is not uncommon in the town of West Memphis, and West Memphis 3 is not the only case of child murders in the area. One of the town's residents referred to West Memphis as one of those towns that you can miss very easily when you're driving on the interstate if you're not paying attention to signs. There's really not much going on there aside from a Blue Beacon truck wash that is also a truck stop that is very frequently used by truckers. It's along an essential route, so there's a lot of people going in and out of that area and that strip has a lot of motels and restaurants, fast food. Nothing too glamorous, but definitely highly trafficked. So let's get into the case. And the case starts on the night of May 5th, 1993, where three eight-year-old boys are reporting missing from West Memphis. Mark Byers, father of Christopher Byers, was the first one to report to police that his son was missing while he and his older son were out looking for Christopher. Mark Byers reported that Christopher didn't come home from school earlier that day, which prompted Mark to go out looking for him. This time he was able to find Christopher, to which he reported he brought him home, gave him a spanking, and told him to clean the garage until he got back from his errands. This was around 5.30, and this was the last time that Mark would see Christopher alive. So he went on his errands and returned. It's not really specified what time he got back, but when he got back, he talked to his wife, Melissa, and asked him where Christopher was. And she said that he had to be in the house or in the garage, but she wasn't positive. So 
after looking through the house and not finding him, they started a search on their own. Uh, Mark Byers went out with his older son, Ryan, and they looked through the neighborhood. And while they were doing this, like I said, they ran into a police officer and made a formal report. And while this was happening, their neighbor, Dana Moore, crossed the street and made another report to police that her son was also missing. But she had a little bit more information to shed on the case. So wait, they he had been missing after school that day? They found him, he came home, went on errands, and then went missing again? Yes, that is what... It's odd that that would happen. Um, and Just like that. It's yeah, just weird that he... It's a weird coincidence in this case, and... The only reason it's so prevalent in, like, in the research and when you look into it is the fact that he gave him that spanking. So a lot of people were going to be looking at that and being like, the last time you saw your son alive, you gave him a spanking. Like, that doesn't look good. I will say, throughout a lot of my research, Mark Byers was a not very... He did not look very good to me. But as we would get deeper into the case, we'll uncover some things that kind of leave him of suspicion but yes, so both, at this point, both boys are reported missing, both Michael Moore, son of Dana Moore, and Christopher Byers, son of Mark and Melissa Byers. They talked to police, they gave them their statements, and like I said, Dana had a little more information. She said that she last saw Christopher and Michael with a third boy, Stevie Branch, and she said that they were all riding their bikes and she was watching them for a while until they rode their bikes out of her sight. She sent her daughter to find them, but her daughter came back and said that she could not. So by this time, it is around 9.30, both Christopher and Michael had been reported missing by their parents. And like I said, they are neighbors. So it's it's easy to assume that Dana just saw Mark reporting Christopher missing across the street and just made that like easy walk and reported him. It doesn't necessarily, it's not known if she was going to go out of her way to report him that night or not. And the only reason I'm mentioning this is because the third boy's parents, Pam Hobbs, reports him missing after 9.30. And this was because she was working at a restaurant as a waitress. Um, She was aware that her son was not found before she went into her shift. And her husband at the time, Stevie Branch's stepfather, Terry Branch says that he was looking for him and they were both looking him. They were both looking for Stevie for a while before Pam's shift, but she had to go into work. So then Terry said that he continued the search. The reason I'm focusing on this so much is because I just think it's odd that Pam was the one that reported him missing after she had to go into work. She went into work and didn't call off of work when her child, did he not come home from school? Was At this point, they had just not... I don't know if they didn't know if he was at his friend's house. I don't know if he didn't come from from school. We have a lot more information on Christopher Byers than we do Michael Moore and Stevie Branch because Mark Byers was very compliant with the media. And one of my biggest sources for this case is a documentary made by HBO um, called Paradise Lost. And there's actually three installments The first one was made right around when the case was happening in the initial trials, and it had all three families in it. But the second two, uh, the Moores and the Hobbs, neglected to be Byers. It was just Mark Byers who was in them. So that's why we have a lot more information about Stevie and his, not, excuse me, Christopher and his uh, disappearance before they found him. But... See, that's not even what I thought was weird. I thought it was weird that she was the one reporting him and not Terry. Because he was saying that he was out searching for him the entire time that she was at work. And at that point, it was 9.30. We don't, I don't know if Pam talked to Terry and then was like, what the hell? You haven't reported my son missing? Like, what the fuck? Why did thinking? she report him when he was the one out looking? I just also think it's crazy that she went to work. But it's also, you have to, I don't know, like the 90s, it's like kids True. would go out and True. play, play and like they wouldn't forever. come home before dark. So yeah. like yeah. when dark came home, I think is when things when got she serious. was worried and concerned that her son was. she also Was he also a neighbor? You said the first two kids were neighbors, so he was just an extra friend. Was so he... that's another point that I'm going to get to. So 
like I said, the Moors and the buyers were neighbors, but Stevie Branch lived a few blocks away. And both Dana and Mark Byers never had met Terry or Pam Hobbs before this incident. Mark even said that he would not have let Christopher go to their house knowing that it was two or three blocks away. So Christopher had to have lied to them about the location of their house. Mm -hmm. So they had no clue where their son's friend's family was living. They didn't know who, who they were. Which, again, I don't know if this was, like, more common in the time. Like, it's just this, like, small southern community. I guess. I feel like with it being a small southern community, though, I feel like everybody would know everybody at the same time. So I'm surprised and that they didn't know each other. It's a very small uh, second grade class. There, there was, like, 40 kids in this class. Oh, super surprised so that the parents didn't know. It's, it's interesting. But that was another point because I just... I'm very suspicious of Terry and I'm not really going to get into it in this part because not much comes out about him until later in the case in into the 2000s. But for now, just know that he was not the one to report his steps on missing and he told police that he was out searching for him. But uh, Christopher, I mean, excuse me, Mark and Dana were not, they never saw him either, searching for him. So both Mark and Pam reported that they were not very happy with the initial police search that was going on the night that they reported their sons missing. They said that they were dispatching minimal officers and just performing an overall lackluster job. Um, I would definitely understand that considering it's like getting dark. Their child is missing. Boys missing. (laughs) I don't know what was, I don't know if they're just like boys will be boys, but like they're eight years old and yeah, they're children. They're not, (laughs) they're like not preteens. They're not teenagers. They're children. I would be upset as well if I feel like if uh, I didn't feel like the police were doing a sufficient enough job looking for my child. Yeah, they were definitely upset about that. The Moors were not included in the comments that I found, but I'm sure that all of the families were not very happy. But by the next day, the full force of the West Memphis PD was on the hunt for these missing children. They were looking in a nearby area called Robin Hood Woods. They were looking in oh, neighborhood. Robin Hood Woods. Yeah, no, it's very, very cliche almost. But they were not successful in their search. Nothing was turning up until around 1.30 on May 6th, the day after the boys went missing. The officers found tennis shoes of a little boy in Robin Hood Woods. And this patch of woods was near the... Byers and the Moore's house. And it was also near the Blue Beacon truck wash and truck stop that I mentioned earlier. You can see the mm. Blue Beacon truck wash sign from the woods. There's really not much, not many people go into the woods. They said it was a pretty frequented recreation area in the day for kids. They would go out there and play, but obviously it was pretty creepy at, at night. night. Yes, and it's also important to notice or note that this was not the first time that this these woods were searched during this investigate or this uh, search. They had been looking through these woods for a period of time before this. There had been multiple people who had gone through and searched and not come up with anything. So it just makes you wonder. So at 1.30 on May 6th, they found this tennis shoe in Robin Hood Woods. And like I said, despite initial search, the shoe was not seen until now. But now investigators were closing in on it. And as they did, they found the body of Michael Moore. Michael was found naked with his hands and wrists bound to his ankles with shoelace. Michael had suffered, suffered various scrapes, cuts, and contusions, and his cause of death was listed as multiple injuries with drowning. Mm. Near the body of Michael, they found Stevie in similar condition, naked with his wrists bound to his ankles, and his cause of death was listed as the same as Michael. So at this point, police are continuing to search this area, and they are almost certain they're going to find the body of Christopher Byers. And when they do, they were in no way, shape, or form prepared for how his body was found. So he had, his injuries were not similar to Stevie and Michael. Christopher had had his entire scrotum removed and his penis had been skinned. 
So oh my gosh. Christopher's cause of death was listed as multiple injuries, but omitted the impact of drowning, likely due to the blood loss of those injuries. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. It's interesting to me that sexual assault was never mentioned in this case, and the forensic psychologist said the bodies were not sexually assaulted. But how do you say that when that child's... I They did have um, rape kits at this time, so I don't know if that's what they, they, used. they used to conclude that. And it's just also interesting to me that they were found naked and bound this way. And I just don't see... There's no motive for this period, but that's just a very interesting and specific way what to you, leave children that you just Yeah, that you drowned. Children. Also, I think it's interesting that they... And... Like, was it humiliation-driven if it wasn't because of sexual motives? Like, was this a punishment of some sort? It just doesn't make sense to me. And why was Christopher's injury so much more severe? And why was he targeted? And he was literally sexually mutilated. And that was not... Like, his... Well, his sexual organs were mutilated. He wasn't sexually assaulted and mutilated. But I just... Don't. Why was he done? Why was that? Why did that happen to him and not the rest of them? And I just don't understand targeting that part of the body, and yeah. that just is it doesn't add up to me. So clearly, such a heinous crime grabbed the attention of all of West Memphis, and the investigation to find the killers was on everybody's mind. The investigation had numerous dead-end suspects, some of which I feel particularly were dismissed way too quickly. Um, but we're going to get into some of the more notable ones that were that ended up being dead ends, but were still just interesting. So there was a former ice cream truck driver who moved from West Memphis to California not long after the murders. And during a police interview with an unrelated case, he blurted out, I might have blacked out and killed those three kids. He just said that in the in middle. In a police interview. <laughs> like, okay. What was he I facing? I might have blacked out and killed these three I want to know what the California police had on him that he thinks that murdering three children is going to be better than what he's... Like, I don't understand why you would falsely, like, admit to that. Like, what he was trying to do. Like, was he trying to comply and give them... Like, I what none of think? that makes sense to me. But it was found unrelated to the case. The next suspect I want to talk about is Mark Byers, father of Christopher Byers, who was looked into briefly by police in the beginning of the investigation. They didn't really find anything of suspicion with Mark, but something to note that happened later is that, like I said, HBO was making a documentary during this case in the trials, and it's called Paradise Lost. And during the making of this documentary, Christopher Byers gifted the producers a hunting knife and i can only imagine what these like hollywood producers thought that like that's just a weird that's... gift like they just like we don't know you man so gives they them a knife a hunting, gave them a hunting knife. knife as a christmas gift it was a christmas gift because they had just had dinner or something at their house and he just gave it to them they thought it was weird they looked at it and i think they i don't know if they found blood on it and then gave it to police or if they just gave it to police right away no way so the blood on the knife was not visible to the untrained eye it was in the crevice of the knife so it definitely could have been like cleaned and cleaned thoroughly um and nobody would have noticed it. it unless it was looked into that blood was found to match Christopher Byers' blood type, which would also, also match be his son's Mark. blood type. Well, Christopher is the well, son, yes. So it, ma- it did match Mark and Christopher, and it also matches about two million. I think is what they said. Like it was not a smoking gun by any means. DNA, it was not DNA. It was a blood type. So they were still lacking any DNA connection from any suspect, but let alone Mark Byers. So. So I already talked about how the last time Mark had seen Christopher, he gave him a spanking, which I definitely think contributed to rumors surrounding the case. And I think that there was talk and he might have been made out to look like more of a suspect than he was. Well, yeah, definitely, because that's like more of like, you know, people like sometimes categorize, you know, that as abuse and um, not being... uh... A great parent by doing that yeah. you know some people definitely don't agree with that so, so that he would uh, be high up on the list for some initially in my research on mark 
mainly due to his theatrical performances in Paradise Lost. I believe he very well could be the killer of these boys, and he was definitely suspicious. I just can't even imagine. But I will get into this more. Just know that John Mark Byers, and yes, that he has two first names. His full name is John Mark Byers, which made this whole research confusing for me in the very beginning, but I got it down is truly an enigma wrapped in a riddle. This man is just a character. And I'm going to post a lovely picture of him on Instagram just so you guys can see what he looks like. He's in a he's in a United States flag, like button-up shirt in the picture. So it's just it just really shows you the type of man he is. He's very he's very funny, funny guy. But the next suspect or lack thereof really is Terry Hobbs and the reason I mentioned the stepdad, him, the stepdad of, of Stevie. Stevie Branch. Okay. He was not investigated by police and police did not have a comment when they were asked why. This is initially I didn't really have anything to say about this because I felt like obviously it's not the parents in a case like this, like they're so brutally murdered, like they the condition that the bodies were found in but there is a lot that comes out about Terry after the initial convictions behind this case that do not look good for him. And that is going to be something I get into heavily in part two. But for now, just know that he kind of just slipped under the radar of police somehow. And I'm just like really surprised that he did. Also, A, because mainly because I feel like he's a step parent. Not that that being a step parent is fine. They're, you know what I mean? They are parents, nothing like that. I just feel like. Um, the police might zero in on him just because of that. Um, just not having that. Yeah, that biological connection to yeah. him. He might be able to do such a thing. Again, I'm not saying that, <laughs> you know, parents are anything more. They are parents, but sometimes that, that can get stereotyped. And no, I see. I definitely see what you're saying there. So this next suspect is just wild i don't know why this wasn't looked into more i don't know how this went under the radar but here we go the night of the murders within hours of the boys being reported at a nearby bojangles restaurant near the blue beacon truck wash a man was reported to be disoriented covered in blood and in the woman's restroom this report was made after mark had reported his son missing so police were aware of the incident And did anybody go? So they sent an officer out to the restaurants. And by the time the officer got there, the man had reportedly left. And the officer then proceeded to go through the drive-thru, not get out of her car, and let them know that there would be somebody coming back to... Wait, she didn't even get out to talk to them? She literally went went through the drive-thru, said, Is the guy still here? Can I get a number two with a large fry? Like What? And she didn't go... No. She, and this was admitted on the stand at trial. She did not go into the restaurant. She did not get out of her car. Also, you could go in if he was in the bathroom. You could go in and see if there's, like, anything left. Any she was clean. aware of the missing boy. She said on the stand that it was out of her jurisdiction. Ugh. And to which the defense asked, was the physical distance close to the crime scene? And she answered yes, which it was. It was very close. So they did not do anything with that until the next day where they came back to take a, uh, a report. And by that time, the bathroom had been cleaned because it's a Bojangles Yeah, restaurant. and also probably it's not even the same staff that was working last night. If they're working at nighttime, they're not going to be opening. Well, I mean, definitely some people do that. But I mean, what? So they were not able to get much. They actually were able to get a tiny amount of blood from the wall. And this went nowhere because they lost it. And They lost it. So that that was the whole Bojangles. Which I feel like could have been such a key, even if it were like, even if it was unrelated, like that would have been, an, I don't know. It just, I can't believe they didn't look into that more. And it's interesting. There's theories around this. Uh, this was a black man that was seen at the Bojangles. And there's theories that he wasn't necessarily the one that committed the murders, but that he just may have saw something or knew something and a lot of people make the point of any black man with blood on his hands going to police and saying that he had 
If you yeah. saw three little boy, three little white boys get murdered in the yeah. South, that yeah. would not that would not go over so well with police. I that was a theory that I saw pop up a few times. So with all of these dead end suspects, police were starting to get frustrated. They were just chasing dead end after dead end. That was until June seventh, where the investigation took a sharp turn, when seventeen year old Jesse Miss Kelly confessed to being an accomplice to the murders and sexual assault of these three boys, along with Damien Eccles and Jason Baldwin. Oh, my. So, wow, this is great. Police finally have some evidence that they can lock away these monsters that did it to these boys. Except that's not the case at all. They have no hard evidence, and we're going to get into that. So, on June 7th, the three boys are arrested following Jesse's confession. How old were these boys again? So, Damien at the time was 19, Jesse was 17, and Jason was 18, I believe. Uh, all adults. But still, like, teenagers. Like, these are little Yeah, no, but they'll boys. be tried. I yes, just mean, like, no. if they, they would be tried as adults, that's really what I was trying yes, to figure exactly. out. So, Detective Gary Gitchell, the lead detective of the case, can be seen on the news that evening at a press conference. And a news reporter asked him how confident he is in this case on a scale of 1 to 10. And this cocky-ass man answers an 11, with, to which the reporter laughs and he smirks. So, obviously, they have a rock-hard case against these people, and they are not going to have any struggle. So, let's discuss this confession from Jesse Miss Kelly. When Jesse went into the police station, he was in no way, shape, or form a suspect in the case, and he went in voluntarily with the intention of assisting them find the killer. Jesse was taken to the police station at 10 a.m., where he would then spend over 10 hours being questioned by police, for which we only have a 40-minute recording to show for. So Jesse's IQ scores ranged from 67 to 72, this indicates that he's pretty mentally challenged. Yeah, One of the books that I read called him, quote, borderline retarded. I don't like using that word, but I definitely think it's important to know that his mental capacity and his mental functioning was not... Very low functioning. Very low functioning. Like in the 60s and 70s is definitely like a low... And this was documented on multiple IQ tests. I wonder if he was, like, able to make his own decisions. People with, like, that level sometimes are deemed not, like, do not have the capacity to make their own decisions. They had to get, since he was 17, they had to get his father's permission before they administered a polygraph, which they would eventually do. So the real reason why they brought Jesse into the station was because they knew he was connected to another teenager Damien Eccles, who was suspected by residents of West Memphis of being in a satanic cult. It seems that their motive for bringing him in was to get any information they could on Damien. At first, when Jesse was brought in for questioning, he gave the police the name of Robert Birch. They were clearly not satisfied with this because they had nothing on this man and they he was not a suspect. I had seen nothing about Robert Birch in any of the research other than Jesse's confession. So they immediately got permission from his father to administer a polygraph test. So wait, he literally just like goes into this police station and like confesses to this or like why did he go in initially? What was like did they call him in? Did they request him to come in? Why did he just go in? They requested he come in to answer it or to give any information he had relating to the case it was not like any way that he was required to like i said he wasn't a suspect they didn't think that he was necessarily involved they just had the suspicion that damien had something to do with it so and like i said he was there for 10 hours and we only have 40 minutes to show for it so they're bringing him in they're administering a polygraph which is I don't know if I could ever pass a polygraph if I was telling the I truth. know, I think that they're... Because they're, they're really accurate. measuring how calm you are and yeah. how your, your nervous system is functioning. So I would be extremely nervous if I was in a police interrogation room and they were accusing me of murdering, murdering. three little boys or having something to do with murdering three little boys. Um, we don't know to the extent that the police did this and 
accused him of murdering before his confession, but that's because we don't have... Yeah, and when was the polygraph given? Like, right away? Was it If he was there for 10 hours, was it given, you know, four hours in? I mean, I would be extremely anxious after four hours of sitting in an interrogation room. Even if I hadn't been talked to, I would have been anxious. So I just wonder when it was administered after anything. It seems like it was administered pretty early on in the invest uh, in the questioning, and that's when they started to really turn up the heat. Not only was this confession given after numerous hours of questioning, but Jesse was also showed pictures of the boys and the condition that they were found, including oh, Christopher Byers and his mutilated state. So I can imagine the effects that that would that have. That would have on somebody, on somebody after seeing that. And especially being accused of involved. And also with him being, like, the lower functioning, I feel like after hours of interrogation, I mean, potentially he could have just, like, thought, yep, you know, they think I did it, I did it. I'm gonna, you know, after seeing those pictures, hearing those things, seeing those things, I just wonder how much of the confession... And that's something we'll get into is false confession and coerced confession, because the defense brings a lot of that to the trial. And that is something that they definitely harp on. So Jesse's confession implemented him in the murders to the extent of an accomplice. He said that he was there when it was going on and that he chased down and tackled Michael Moore. Not oh. He didn't necessarily use the word tackled, but he chased down and grabbed Michael Moore so that he couldn't get away, is what he told police. I just also can't imagine these uh, teenage boys, I don't know, they're literally just... These are children. These are children. And another thing is the fact that the crime scene was spotless. There was no blood. There was no DNA. I meant to ask that too. Like, so why did they say that they were drowned? Like, there was other things that led. Was there like a body of water beside where they were? Like, what was the whole drowning thing? So I don't know if I made that exactly clear, but the body of Michael Moore was the first body that they found and it was the shoe that they initially saw and when they went to recover the shoe it was in a shallow creek and that is when his body floated to the surface okay i couldn't find if stevie was underwater when they found him they said that he was closest to michael and they found him second and christopher i would assume it was not found in the water because he had no drowning in his autopsy. But it also could have been those injuries because he could have been deceased before he was put into the water. Okay, okay. But yes, I just wanted to to clear that up. One of the police's smoking guns with Jesse's confession is the fact that he provided information on the case that was not released to the public, such as the wounds on the boys. But... My question is, they showed him pictures. That's what I was going to say. So was did that come before or after and they showed him the pictures of the boys? We'll never know that. Because no. Because the, and the 40-minute the audio recording that we have is not is not a full length. It's doctored. Part? It is edited. So they still, of the, whatever they recorded, which was not even the entire uh, questioning, they still edited what they brought to court and played for the jury. Yeah, and, like, at what point, I wonder, what, like, what point in the record, like, where were they in the investigation when this recording st- stopped and started? Did they just, like, piece together pieces? So that's another thing about it, is that the time of the murders that Jesse reported was not lining up at all. He initially said it was noon, and with leading questions, they got him to move it to 5 p.m., and with more leading questions, they finally got it to around 8 p.m., which would have lined up with what they had this was a big point of interest for the defense because he was not giving the right time right off the bat it was no, very it was clear at noon they found them at it was very clear he was saying it was noon the, the day, day before okay, okay. that they had committed the murders and at that point stevie i mean all the christopher at least was seen alive by mark christopher yeah, was yeah, after still school. living at that point yes so that wasn't working for police so they they kept asking leading questions. They changed the time or revisited the time in the investigation eight separate times and asked him about it until they finally got what until they got they, what they wanted out of what him. What they wanted out of him. The exactly. right time for them that fit the description. So great police work there. Um 
Another thing that wasn't adding up is the fact that he said to police that they tied up their bodies with rope. And like I said, the bodies were found tied up with shoelace, which honestly might not seem like a big deal. But my thought behind that was if this, if Jesse was shown pictures of the boys and saw that they were tied up and didn't look very closely when he was talking about that later, he could have just remember that they were tied up and what would anybody assume that you tie anybody up with this rope, rope yeah. exactly like yeah. you wouldn't say shoelace if you weren't there and you didn't do it you would say rope because that's what you used to tie up people people yeah you would never know so he did not say that shoelaces were the uh weapon <laughs> <laughs> that shoelaces were the agent used to tie up these boys So, let me clear something up. This was happening June 7th when the murders happened, what, May 5th or 6th? The boys went missing missing May 5th and they were found May 6th, yes. Okay, so we're talking to a suspect that this happened literally a month ago. I don't... I know, me personally, I can... A mentally challenged suspect. Yes, at that. Somebody, yes, somebody that um, has a lower IQ, definitely... I can't remember... What happened, you know, necessarily in full detail, what happened on Monday and today's Thursday. I can't imagine recanting um, word for word, detail for detail, a murder scene that happened um, a month ago. And another thing to note is the fact that police were at least somewhat aware that Jesse was mentally handicapped. So they asked him at one point in the interview if he knew what a penis was. And this is a 17 year old boy. So clearly they know that this boy is not fully men- of mental capacity. capacity they know yeah, that no. he needs if to... If we're asking a 17-year-old a question like that, no. So that's just... They knew the type of boy they were dealing with, I think, in this situation. And they took advantage of that. So while this confession was given, and like I said, the only reason he was brought in is because of his connections to Damien Eccles around West Memphis there was a satanic panic going on. There was multiple reports of groups of teenagers wearing all black, having orgies and sacrifices in the woods. Uh, There was no evidence, there was no real evidence to suggest this took place. There was no criminal cases that emerged from this. There was a lot of stories. Um, One coming from Mark Byers on Paradise Lost, where he returns to the crime scene and says that the three boys would have satanic rituals and homosexual orgies. In the woods, which is... Wait, the dad said this? Mark Byers did, yes. He... Said that his... What boys? Excuse me, yeah, I should probably clear that up. Mark Byers said that the Damien, Jason, okay, and Jesse... Okay, I thought you were saying that. ...had satanic rituals in, in the, the woods. woods and a homosexual orgy. orgy. Not about his son, no. no okay, no. I he was, was like... out here doing that. I'm like, these eight-year-olds, what are we <laughs> no. accusing What's them going of? What's Memphis? Yeah, no. Yeah, the Bible Belt's gone crazy. You, really? Another rumor that was circulating around West Memphis at the time was that Damien Eccles had a jar of testicles in his what? house with fingerprints on it. And Mark on the documentary said, if that's not good enough evidence, like that, like, they, they have rock hard evidence. There was an, obviously no jar of testicles. Yeah. I'm like, they never, we if that would have been evidence. Yes. Case, I'm like, like this would have been monsters that murdered boys. And there's clear evidence to show that, but no. So it was a hell of a lot of rumor and not a lot to sustain that rumor, those rumors. So now let's start, let's get into the three accused starting with Damien who was definitely accused to be the ringleader in all of this so Damien definitely stuck out in West Memphis he wore all black had naturally black hair which is to note because I'm sure a lot of people thought he dyed it because he was definitely going for the emo aesthetic and frequently wore a long black trench coat despite how hot the weather was he was oh always gosh, in a in trench coat that trench coat can you imagine seeing this and in in, this is the Ooh. south this is Arkansas. yeah that's what i'm like, saying like this is the dog days of summer and you used to see damon walking down the street in a trench coat yeah no but i mean to each their own honestly like the fact that he wore black i'm like i'll be damned if black's not if i'm not looking down i'm wearing black yeah right no now. black all the time but i just black is slimming just... damn it okay everybody loves black okay i don't know why <laughs> That it's such a big deal that this boy was wearing black, but oh, it is, it is. Just where it was. Yeah, so right now we just have a teenager who likes to wear black in a trench coat. 
but his childhood was very troubled um, over the course of which he was diagnosed with numerous mental disorders, including depression, being delusional, being suicidal, and even being psychotic, which I'm not exactly sure what that entails, but I know that that would not look good for the defense in this case. Um, A lot of his childhood was spent living in homes with no running water, no AC, no heat. So he had it very, very rough. He uh, had not a solid father figure in his early childhood. And when he got a stepfather, it was not a good relationship. His stepfather asserted... It didn't necessarily say that he was abusive. It just said that he was a very strict and, like, was the matriarch of the house. He was he was very controlling of the house. Yeah, of the household. And Damien's mother. So while Damien was recorded as making some threats to individuals, it really seems like he was more of a bark than a bite type of person. Like I said, he was... Also, wore... living in this community, maybe he just wanted to make a statement, wanted to stand out, wanted to be different. Because living in these small towns in the South, um, especially back then, you know, nobody was like that. So just to get some attention, especially if his household was a little um, different. Everybody in his family, they all say during the interviews too, they're like, we're all just partial to black. I don't know what it is. I'm like, well, I think that's because a majority of people in this country are like, like I said, it's, oh, yeah. it's everybody, slimming. Everybody, it everybody wears black. All, you know, I can't tell you how many pairs of black leggings I own. And those are usually my favorite pants because you're right. Goes slimming goes, goes with everything. everything. Don't have to worry about it. So... He said in an interview while, while he was in incarceration that his demeanor and his like presentation to other people was definitely a defense mechanism to just essentially get people to stay away, which is very easy to understand. You can see... Yeah, especially with his childhood and stuff. Yes. So not only did he look and dress differently, but Damien did not buy into the typical Baptist religion that was common in West Memphis, nor did he align himself with any organized religion. He was not religious... He wore black. We're black. We're getting it's getting hot in here. Okay, we're like this is getting satanic. It's getting good. Okay, so he also guys buckle up. Listen to this. He listened to rock music and (gasps) metal. Rock. One of his favorite bands was Metallica. So this is also just all adding up. And while he wasn't a religious person, he did show some interest in Wicca. But he denies any claims that he is a devil worshiper. He denies any claims that he was part of a satanic cult. And people also have Wicca totally backwards. People think that people that look into Wicca are, like you said, like satanic and devil worshippers. And as somebody that has spent a numerous amount of time researching it and looking into it myself, that's not the case at all. From my understanding, it's literally just like appreciating the earth and yeah the- that's what i was gonna say is pretty much you just like love the earth and you really rely on the earth and like it does take pagan um ideals maybe into it but like that's it's more i feel like and that is we they do find a journal in his house that they use as evidence and it has a, a pentagram on it and it's about wicca and various things and we'll get into that when we get to the trial so he was just, this is a weird kid. Like, he just was a weird kid. He wasn't fitting in. He made threats, but he wasn't really committed. He wasn't convicted of any violent acts. The only, like, big trouble he got in was when he escaped a mental hospital to go be with his girlfriend. So also, did he graduate high school? Did they? He did not graduate high school. Okay. He, uh, none of these boys graduated high school. He's actually the only one that got a GED. Oh, okay. So, but he did do that, and he had a girlfriend... Actually, at the time of this conviction, his girlfriend was pregnant. Oh, dun, dun, dun. I knew something like that was going to happen when you said he had a girlfriend. So that is a quick synopsis of Damien Eccles. Now we're going to talk about Jason Baldwin. And while I feel bad for not only the victims, clearly in this case, who were horrifically murdered and the accused, I definitely feel the worst of the accused for Jason Unlike Damien and Jesse, Jason was an all-around normal kid. And I'm not saying this to insinuate it's not good if you're weird. Like, I was definitely a weird kid. I was not normal. But unlike Jesse and Damien, he really had nothing that would associate him with violence or Satanism or especially not murder. He had no father growing up, so he had to take up a lot of the slack for that. He was a very good sibling and watched over his kids a lot while his mother worked uh, long hours into the night. 
it is said that he was pretty intelligent, but he didn't apply himself in school like a lot of kids his age would. Um, he passed with C's and D's, but a lot of his teachers said they saw some true potential in him. Also, if he's doing all that extra slack at home, like, just... That's a lot, especially at that young of an age. Like, maybe that would attribute to why he wasn't doing as well in school. Tired, you know, other things to be concerned with. Another story that I just felt was worth including that the family told uh, during the trials and all these accusations was a story of when he found a baby kitten and essentially nursed it to health and took it in as his pet. Okay, yeah. If he, like, if you do that, like, I just, I don't know. I guess you could still be a murderer, but, like, come on. Yeah, I know, I know there's plenty of people who are, I'm sure, animal people who have still done, committed awful crimes, but it just seems very unlikely in this case. And while he was incarcerated... Uh, I can't remember exactly what the questions were, but there were some leading questions asking if he had ever killed someone or something or hurt something. And he thought about it for a little bit, and he told a story about how he used to go fishing near his house. And sometimes he would give the fish that he caught to his pet cat. Like, if that's not the <laughs> cutest damn thing that a little southern boy can do, and if the, the first thing that he thought of, like, have I hurt something or killed something? And he thought of that. So I just really don't think... I think Jason was, was... And he was obviously just, like, friends with these boys. Jason and Damien were very close. They were practically inseparable. They were with each other all the time, going to strip malls, hanging out, listening to music. They were just very good friends. And they really didn't get into trouble together. It was reported that Jason got into trouble for graffiti a few times, but nothing to the extent of Damien, yeah. like, escaping... The a mental, mental hospital. hospital. But... So, yes, they were just very good friends, and honestly, that is the only thing that really brought him into this case, is that he was connected to Damien Eccles. So, last but not least, even though we have slightly discussed Jesse a little bit, we're going to get a little bit more into Jesse. So, like I said, he has a very low IQ, and in the book I read called Untying the Knot by Greg Day, he deems him, quote, borderline retarded. So he had numerous behavioral issues growing up. He stabbed a classmate with a pencil in fourth grade. At age 11, he attacked a girl with a brick and was no stranger to getting into fights throughout his adolescence. I realize this doesn't make him look good, but I don't think that acting out as a child especially when you probably weren't getting the treatment and the education and the... Yeah, that you were supposed to get. Yeah. And your home life wasn't probably ideal. Uh, It's like he wasn't a suspect. Like, he was not a suspect in any way, shape, or form in this case when he went into questioning. I just think it's just wild. Yeah, I just think it's wild that he's like, when I was like, yeah, you know, we did it. And honestly, he has the most violent past of these three boys. Yeah. He, it just doesn't, like, it doesn't make sense that they thought this was such a golden goose of a case. I don't understand. I don't think that any of these boys were capable of killing Christopher Michael and Stevie. I really don't. Apparently, the police did. (laughs) Gary Getchell thought it was an 11 out of 10, let me tell you. So, while Jason and Damien were very close, Jesse was not quite as close with the two boys. They were friends, but it was not mentioned that they were best friends like Jason and Damien were. So that's also something to note. And clearly, if you were able to implicate like two people in something like this, if you were to say that they committed such horrible crimes. Because like I said, he said that they murdered and sexually assaulted the boys. Which, once again, goes back to the case I made in the beginning. It doesn't really add up. Like, they, the medical examiner said that there was no sign of sexual assault. Jesse is saying that they sexually, sexually assaulted. assaulted the boys. Jesse doesn't. And the police are saying that Jesse's giving information that wasn't released. Also, didn't you, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you said that he said that he didn't take, and he didn't take part in any of the murdering he Correct. was just there he was just there and he chased down M- michael moore so okay. he did have his hands dirty to a certain extent he was but not, not like the other two but not, and like, not like he and- said that he witnessed damien hit the boys and jason sexually assaulting the boys he, i don't think he mentioned jason being violent but he was mentioned with the sexual assault but his and confession was all over the place because they were 
literally Ten hours forcing, long and it forcing out of him. him to. So, due to his confession implicating Jace, Jason and Damien, Jesse was given a separate trial held about 100 miles north of West Memphis. Was everybody's trial, that's what I was going to ask you, were any, like, was everybody's trials held somewhere different just because, like, the jury and, like, being a small town? You would I, think. You no, would think. No, they think. separated Jesse's trial because he implicated the other two, but Jason and Damien received the same trial. In West in Memphis. West Memphis. Oh, great. Not that, again, like, I just think that it... And this was front-page news. Everybody yeah, knew what was Yeah, to have on. it somewhere else or bring your... the satanic your, um, panic. I'm pretty sure that they do that. Bring your jurors in from, like, outside districts or something like that, you know? And that's something we will get into part two, is that the jury in this case is Local. very questionable. Very questionable. His trial begins in February of 1994. And Jesse's confession is played for the jury, which is pretty damning for him. But the defense is still going to make his case. The defense brings Warren D. Holmes, a police interrogation expert, to the stand. He said that individuals with low IQs are more susceptible to police tactics. They can be more highly suggestible, as well as just taking the shortest route to getting out of the immediate situation. That is to say, they will say whatever they think will get police off their back and not consider the long-term consequences. Wow, I mean, I don't think that we need an expert to tell us that. I just feel like that would have been common knowledge for them to know that we shouldn't... Have the smoking gun un- as this confession. But yes. So this is exactly what happened to Jesse, clearly. After 10 hours of being questioned by police, he broke and told them exactly what they wanted to hear so they could go home. Holmes also t- took issue with the confession's lack of detail. The report repeated mistaken time that the crime was committed and even not knowing what was used to tie up the victims. And I think that's such like a, if the fact that he just said that he tied them up with a rope, I just. And shoelaces are so specific. Yeah, that's what I mean. It's very, yeah, it's just very specific. And like, obviously he was shown those pictures so he could just see, I think you said that before, he he could just see that they were tied up. And what do you tie somebody up with? A rope. So of course he would say a rope. You know, why would he say a shoelace? So the defense does all they can to prove to the jury that this was clearly a coerced and false confession. But they were not successful. And they convicted Jesse guilty of two counts of second-degree murder for Stevie Branch and Christopher Byers and one count of first-degree murder for Michael Moore, who he had chased down. This conviction was given on February 4th, 1994. And just a few weeks later... The Jason and Damien trials began on February 28th, 1994. The prosecution's main angle was the fact that Damien was weird-looking, interested in horror novels and Wicca, and listened to heavy metal and rock music. And I wish I was kidding about this. So, in researching this case, I actually had a moment, my former emo self, like, moment of clarity. Because I don't know how many fellow uh, former emos are out there who listen to Blackville Brides. But... In their video, Knives and Pens, in the beginning of it, there's an audio, and it says, it's two men talking back and forth, and it says, and looking at young people involved in the occult these days, do you see a particular type of dress? The other man responds, I have personally observed people wearing black fingernails, black hair, black clothing, and sometimes they would tattoo themselves. That is from the Jason Eccles and Damien excuse me, that is from the Jason Baldwin and Damien Eccles case. And that is just crazy to me that I like, (laughs) I was listening to that in like middle school and I had no clue where it was from. And it's literally from this case where they convicted people who would probably have listened to Black Rob Brides at that time. But that's just a little side note. So that man who was giving his testimony on the occult was Dr. Dale W. Griffith. Now, Dr. Griffith, was called to the stand and they went over a journal that was taken from Damien Echo's house. And on the cover of the journal, they found a, they saw a pentagram. Oh, I was knew it. A pentagram. So they had a heyday with that. They were talking about the connections to Satanism and satanic rituals and occultism. And then they opened the book. So they find more pentagrams and upside down crosses and Wicca symbols and satanic symbols and just a whole plethora of information about 
devil worshiping and but it's not just about devil worshiping I, it kind of makes it sound bad it was like a all-around book about wicca about and, witchcraft about probably wi- yes about, about witchcraft. so it was not necessarily a satanic satanic book it was more of a research book because witchcraft isn't always satanic <laughs> to the shock of many but <laughs> so when he was questioned about this book there was parts that were underlined in a specific chapter about the devil and the power of blood force. And they brought Damien to the stand and asked him why those parts were underlined, to which he responded that he had purchased it from a library sale for about 50 cents, and it just came with the underlines in it, which is pretty... Like, that's not crazy to... uh, So this was a journal that you said? It says it was a journal, but it appears that it was like a... Kind of like a duel. Like, it was a journal, but it also had Yeah, no, I was just asking because I think it's like, yeah, if you bought it from, like, a sale, then they can't even... I mean, I guess they could use it because he could have bought it. It was a used book sale. But I'm like, how do you even use that then? Because he just bought it. He didn't do all of this. He just purchased it. After they go through all of the journal and they talk about how it is so connected to uh, devil worshipping and witchcraft and all of these evil things, the defense actually questions this occult expert. And he asked him what kind of classes he took over the four years he was in school to receive his PhD, to which Dr. Griffith responded, none. The defense established that he had... essentially attained a mail-order degree and even shown the jury a flyer from the university, quote-unquote university, that literally had a, like, call 1-800 for your PhD. Wait, he had a PhD and he got it, like... And essentially a mail-order PhD. And this man was called to the stand to prosecute these boys. And the judge was... The judge couldn't give a shit that this man had not taken any classes. And he literally said, anyone with a third grade education can be an expert with the proper training. But wouldn't the proper training be the classes? I don't. I, that. Be taking, yeah, taking the classes, getting the degree. That's your training. So that's Dr. Griffith for you all. Another point that the prosecution was harping on was the fact they had found a knife behind Jason Baldwin's house. This was this knife was found five months after the murders, and something that is of note for this search. So they went out to this location and they looked for one hour before they found the knife. That seems like a little too Long convenient time. for me. Like they, they knew that this. They didn't look for a very long time at all. No, they. It just seems like they. Had a very strong hunch that something was there. Yeah. There was no evidence, no DNA evidence, no blood on the knife, but they did find it behind the trailer park, which Jason Baldwin lived in. So what another smoking gun for them to point at these defendants. The defense calls forensic pathologist Dr. Frank J. Petridi to the stand to ask about the boy's injuries. Dr. Petridi, understanding of the crime was that Christopher Byers' injuries were inflicted by some with great precision and skill. He also said it would take a considerable amount of time to do, even if he was in a laboratory. So whoever was, whoever committed those injuries to Christopher Byers was is assumed to have known what they were doing. They, yeah, be very precise. And be very precise. It was not something that would have been quick either. He said that... It would have taken a long time, and it would have taken even more time to clean the crime scene of all of the blood that would have been lost. Yeah, and you said it was left. There was no blood. Yeah. There was no blood found at the crime scene. So it's clear to me that the boys were not murdered there. That's what I was literally about to say is I, they were not murdered there. That was where they were dumped. And it's not ever So where's the original murder scene is what they need. Exactly. And they do not ever seem to be... Care about that? To care about where they were... Actually, I just want to know, like, why if they... Where's all the other blood? Like, where... You know what I mean? Where's the blood? All these terrible things happen. I mean, they, for Pete's sake, I can't even imagine the amount of blood that would come from, you know, mutilating the scrotum. So, like, uh, where is this And if you're going to do that outside, how the hell are you going to clean, clean it up the woods? Weed whack? You take a weed whacker out there, you know... It's not, <laughs> cut it's down not the, happening. Cut it's down the happening. grass. I don't know. So... I just can't believe that they never touched on that. There's a lot of things that they kind of refused to look into. But the defense calls Mark Byers to the stand as their 
kind of grasping for straws at this point. They were very hesitant to do this because to accuse a father of something like this is not something that defense attorneys really like to do in cases. And they made that very clear. But they brought him to the stand because of the knife that was gifted to the HBO producers. But nothing really came from this. They didn't have any DNA on the knife, just the blood that was not tested further after it was... And we obviously had DNA testing at that time, and they just couldn't... They didn't, or they couldn't... There they just enough. didn't do it. They There was also a, a fiber on the knife that the forensic pathologist discussed... And that was also not looked into. But why? Because they had their goose. But, oh, yeah. I forgot they had their... Uh, they had their 11 out of 10. 11 original. out of 10. One of the last pieces of evidence against these boys is two teen girls who had overheard Damien Eccles kind of bragging about the murders in public because that's exactly what anybody would do is go out and brag in public about killing three eight-year-old boys. The prosecution called them to the stand and they were the only witnesses that would not show their faces which is understandable in a case like this they were both teens but they it was interesting because everybody else it was like they had other children they had people uh testifying and these two girls did not want their names they did not want anything to do with the case other than the fact that they were implicating damien when these girls were cross-examined by the defense they were able to provide no information about what they had heard outside of the fact that he admitted to the murders. They didn't know what he said right before, right after, or literally any other information. On top of this, one of the teens said that she had never seen him before in her life and couldn't remember what day it was that she had saw him or heard this. And the other one openly admitted to paying closer attention to him specifically because he looked weird. Um, also, okay, this is a small town. How did they not know each other? Not obviously. I'm just surprised that she's never seen him in her life. Also, I, are we sure of like, this? Because I'm like, is there any, like, vendetta that these girls would have had against Damien? There's no, they, like, looked into that to make sure there was I don't no. know if that would have necessarily been it, or they just wanted, like, their, like, five minutes of fame. Yeah, yeah. But also, another thing to point out is I don't know how small of a town it was granted it wasn't a huge like booming city or anything but with a population in 2020 of around 25,000 people and that had gone down from 2010 so I would imagine that like you do know a majority of the people but it is not like uncommon to have people in your age group that you wouldn't exactly know who they were the summary of the evidence for this case against Jason Baldwin and Damien Eccles is the knife left behind Jason Baldwin's house that was found in the pond, Jesse Miss Kelly's confession implicating the two, Damien Eccles' appearance, demeanor, and interests, and that is really all that they had. They didn't have any other evidence. They didn't have any motive. They didn't have any connections to why they would have chose these boys. They just had satanic rumors and a confession from a mentally challenged boy. And they also had, like, do they not, like, I don't know, was there nobody to verify, like, where those boys were at that time? Or Their the, the families thing? tried to uh, verify their locations for their alibis. And after Jesse uh, confessed, he obviously recanted his statement and told police that he was at a wrestling match, which he was able to provide an alibi for. But at that point, it was too late. They'd already gotten their confession, and they weren't going to throw that away. Oh, my gosh. The jury has all of this evidence, and they come back and find both Jason and Damien guilty of all three oh counts my of murder. And they are sentenced to life in prison. Damien actually faces the death penalty for oh this my case. Oh, gosh. And there's nothing. more turns. And that's actually where I'm going to leave us today is the conviction. So we have Damien, Jason, and Jesse all convicted to life in prison for the murders of Michael Moore, Christopher Byers, and Stevie Branch. Two years after this conviction, HBO releases the documentary that they were working on during the trial, Paradise Lost. And it causes a massive reaction to this case which has a lot to do with the developments that we're going to talk about in episode two. 
I plan on releasing an episode in between part one and two just to give everybody some time to think about how they feel about the case and to kind of allow the shock factor of all the new evidence to set in because it was years before something was done about this conviction. With that being said, I wanted to thank everybody for listening to my first episode of Not Ending Up, and I wanted to thank my co-host, who will be returning for part two. I'm uh, just super excited to see where part two leads us, because as a true crime lover myself, I specifically... um, didn't really listen to the podcast pertaining to this, so I could be surprised along the ride. So definitely been surprised this far. Um, interested to see where this next part takes us because I have a thousand questions that the police definitely didn't answer or ask. <laughs> and so do a lot of people, and that is what we will talk about. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode, and I hope you tune in again soon for another case that just does not add up.